Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox for another episode of Compliance Into the Weeds with my good friend and colleague, Matt Kelly, founder and editor of Radical Compliance. Matt, welcome. Hello, Tom. It's always good to be here. Well, Matt, uh, I would have to say you scooped the compliance world uh, Sunday or Saturday, excuse me, when you wrote about a document that had apparently been up on the Department of Justice Fraud Section website for some 10 days, which was is entitled Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs. And I thought that it would be uh, really interesting for you and I to uh, go through it today because uh, uh, I certainly found it to be a, a very excellent resource for the compliance practitioners. So uh, maybe you could tee it up on uh, how you found out about it. Sure. Uh, I found out about it through the miracle of modern technology. I have a Google News alert for FCPA, and poof, there it came up on my uh, computer on Saturday afternoon. And like you said, I was a bit startled at first that I think this is a great, rich, detailed document. We can get into that. But at first I looked at it and said, well, everybody must already know about this. And I then was looking around online and was like, holy cow, apparently we haven't noticed it. Um, it just spontaneously appeared uh, on the criminal section or the fraud section's website. I Somebody else has later said that this was posted on February 8th. I don't know exactly when it was posted. I only know that I saw it on Saturday afternoon when White and Case, the law firm, they had reference to it on one of their blogs, but I mean, it's legit. It is not dated, so I don't know when it was written or drafted, how long it's taken, but 11 different categories of things to think about and 46 questions that uh, prosecutors would typically be looking to ask a compliance officer. This is really great stuff for a corporate practitioner. Uh, I heartily agree, and the uh, the beauty of it I saw was uh, in a couple of different ways. Obviously, or or I would assume that these are questions the Department of Justice would ask or at least inquire into. So I see it as a way for we in the compliance world and compliance profession to understand what the department is going to consider. But it also gives us a way in the compliance profession to assess and evaluate our own programs both in terms of um, uh, taking a look at uh, uh, how, 
how the department considers things, but also in benchmarking for other best practices or effective compliance programs. So I thought it really worked uh, both inbound and outbound and gives the compliance practitioner uh, a, a variety of tools. And, and I guess the final point that dawned on me is if management wants to know uh, why are you doing this, why are you asking, what are you thinking about, you can say you can use this as a teaching moment for your senior management and say, this is what the Department of Justice has said uh, they're looking at and we ought to look at it. And, and if they say they're looking at it, we do need to look at it. You know, I thought I agree with all that. And even at a more basic level, if you are a new compliance officer or you're charged with building a program for the first time and you're just sitting there spitballing, like, what am I supposed to do? What is this program supposed to be about? It's supposed to be about these things, these 46 different questions. Um, you know, it really walks through all of the big major elements, very reflective of the U.S. Attorney's Manual's uh, look at FCPA, very much built upon the 2012 guidance that the Justice Department and SEC put out about FCPA compliance. But, like, it's good whether you already have a program and you are disclosing something. It's good if you have no program and you have to build one and you're looking for a map. This hits all the dots. So, Matt, as you uh, indicated, there are 11 general categories. Uh, the, obviously, the 2012 guidance had the 10 hallmarks of an effective compliance program. So it follows that uh, general framework, but it adds uh, a new one or uh, rather refines one that we hadn't seen before, uh, which is entitled Analysis and Remediation of Underlying Conduct, excuse me, Misconduct. What, did, uh, what stuck out for you in this new number one topic? Well, uh, one thing that I think is interesting here, you know, if they're looking at root cause analysis, um, you know, really you have to, there's certain analytical capability here that a lot of compliance officers in the past might not have been able to do. Um, I love compliance officers, but let's be honest, most of them come from a law background and you are much more well-trained in theory and what legal requirements are, and not necessarily as trained or expert in systems analysis. Um, one thing that I thought of was take this section one, root cause analysis is the very first question out of all of the dozens. Like walk that over to your audit or IT analytics department if you have one and say, could we do this kind of thing with this example? How could I figure this out? Like internal auditors are much more well-suited to doing root cause analysis of, say, uh, financial misconduct uh, or an embezzlement issue or something like that. Uh, it drives home that you really need to be partners with somebody like that in your enterprise, if you have them or if you're contracting with an outsider or something like that. So, Matt, I'd like to build upon that point because uh, one of the messages communicated to me was that exactly that. You do need to walk across the hall or walk down the hall, but it also starts the conversation that I think is a big part of this document, which is the operationalization of compliance, moving it yep. into the relevant business disciplines within your organization. And the second part is uh, I see a lot of more uh, continuums of conduct of a corporate compliance officer in a compliance function. Uh, so, for instance, in topic number one, it starts with a root cause analysis, but then it moves across to say, what did your remediation 
do based upon the conduct you uncovered in your root cause analysis, and how did your remediation stop that? So it ties the two together in a way that I had not seen the department do before. Mm -hmm. And I would even expand a little on the operationalizing. I'll put section one aside because section one is really about what to do when you've already had a problem. But many of the other questions in the other sections are just as good if you have no problem or if you have no program and you're building it up, a lot of uh, talk about, you know, there's one question on senior and middle management about shared commitment. Uh, there's another question later on about what the gatekeepers, and that would be compliance officers or HR managers or whatnot, how have they been trained to understand that they've got a higher specialized role in a good compliance program. A lot of it, there's another section on policies and procedures. Where did they come from? Did you talk with the business units that will actually have to do these policies and procedures day in and day out? Very much about spreading the success of this across a whole lot of different parts of the company that are they're all going to have to work together a little bit each to be able to build something big of an effective compliance program. So that's, that's a running theme throughout the all 11 sections here. Absolutely. So let's just move directly into number two, senior and middle management, because I saw some things here that I had not seen the, the DOJ talk about before. So, for instance, obviously, uh, tone at the top is, is ubiquitous, but here they talk about not only conduct at the top, but how does a company monitor its senior management, senior leadership's behavior, and how does senior leadership model proper behavior? And those are things I'd really not seen before. Mm -hmm. And you will see a related question further down if you're looking at this list. They have a whole section about incentives and whatnot and how companies do encourage good behavior by building compensation plans or incentives or something around doing good behavior, wholly separate from the disciplinary action for bad behavior. That's in there too, but they're getting at how do you really you know, make this work and how do you have the proof because that's what you remember, who's asking for this? Lawyers, Justice Department people, they're going to be asking for evidence that people are taking this seriously. And you know, do they take it seriously structurally that you're incentivized to do it? And they do they take it seriously substantively? Like here's some good examples of what we've done. Um, I actually, in this section here, section two, I was also pleased to see there's another question. What compliance expertise has been available on the board of directors? Would love it to see more chief compliance officers serving on boards. That is still as rare as hen's teeth, but it's not unheard of. I don't think this is going to tip the, the scales, but you know, it's, it's yet another reason for compliance officers to let themselves be known as good board candidates out there in other organizations. So let me, I think it really took it a step further than that, Matt. I think it does say you need to have a retired CCO or some other person with compliance expertise on the board. And, and I think it's, it's more a step in that direction. But before we got to the board, it, it also talked about this middle management role. And it said that not only do the actions of senior leaders need to be held accountable, but other stakeholders, including business and operational managers, finance, procurement, legal, and HR. So how is not only compliance communicated down an organization, but what are people doing to show their commitment? So uh, really, you know, at the very top, with senior management, above that at the board, and now down into middle management, uh, you really have to demonstrate that compliance is burned into your organization. Yeah, yeah, you do. 
So the next category is autonomy and resources. And these are things that I think we've seen for the most part before, but we saw some greater specificity uh, in this uh, section. Anything really uh, stand out for you in that regard? Um, you know, not necessarily, uh, other than it keeps hammering home the uh, the clear desire by the Justice Department to see that compliance is not part of or answers into or is the general counsel. And you still see that a lot, that there's a general counsel slash chief compliance officer in, in one body and one person. Uh, I, I personally believe that the Justice Department just doesn't like that. You know, they're, they're not going to be able to wave a magic wand and require it until they get a settlement, until you have an issue. But as a best practice, clearly they don't like this. Um, you know, there are some questions about autonomy that has the compliance and relevant control functions. Do they have direct reporting lines to anyone on the board? Um, do the compliance and relevant uh, control personnel have reporting lines into headquarters if they're out in the field? You know, how do you ensure independence? It's again, it's a lot of, you know, prove it. That's what compliance officers are going to have to do here for anything at all. I, I think the Justice Department will be open minded as to how your compliance program might look if you can prove it works. But in my observation, it only works if it looks in a couple of basic certain ways, traits of successful compliance programs. And you know, an autonomous compliance function with a high-level chief compliance officers, it's going to be crucial. It's hard to see how you can not have that and get past this smell test of questions. So I absolutely agree with you. And uh, although the department has maintained a public face of not taking a position of who the CCO should report to, uh, whether it's the board directly or through the GC, it seems like to me that they really – made their thoughts clear in this, but there was two other points I wanted to, to pick up on, and the first is on funding and resources, where we have heard the DOJ talk about funding uh, resources, both monetary and headcount available to a CCO or compliance function, but here they uh, specify they want to know how you made those allocations, and were fund, was funding requested, and it turned down. Uh, who made those mm -hmm. decisions? Uh, but then the last one is something we have not seen before, uh, which is entitled outsourced compliance functions. Now, I know there are companies that provide those services, uh, not many, and it's not really uh, a mature market offering. Nevertheless, uh, the Department of Justice has obviously heard about it, but they raised two interesting points that really speak to outsourcing generally, which is, number one, what's the competence of your outsourcing company? Um, and then number two, how are you managing that outsourcing company? You can't simply outsource a business process and do nothing. Uh, you have to manage that. And um, I'm not sure companies that are outsourcing their compliance functions have really done an analysis on either of those issues. I don't think so. And this one is, it's a bit difficult to get your head around what a effective outsource compliance function might look like. Uh, that is not necessarily, well, let me put it this way. I, I think that outside the financial services world, outsourcing compliance is generally not going to be done. You can outsource some tools that a compliance function would need. A lot of people outsource their hotline. A lot of people used outsourced due diligence 
help for third parties. Uh, within financial services, especially investment advisors, you know, it's theoretically possible to outsource a compliance function there. Um, but they're a special case, and they're not generally what we mean by ethics and compliance, as most people listening on this podcast would think of it. Um, so I, you know, I think that what they're really trying to get at here is they just want to make sure you have not put anything on autopilot. Um, and it does get to, you know, how much attention senior level people are paying to compliance processes. It's okay that somebody else provides the process so long as you're thinking and you're observing and you're paying attention to what's being said there. Um, but you're right. I haven't actually seen the Justice Department talk too much about outside source compliance functions and the risks they may or may not bring. Uh, it's worth mentioning that a lot of times, a lot of the processes, the outsourced people are probably better at it than you. Um, hotlines in particular, they're a pain in the neck for a company to run on their own. You might as well outsource it. They're not terribly complex, but the management and the analytics of the calls you're receiving, that's where it gets to be a little bit tricky. So I don't think outsourced compliance is going away, but clearly the Justice Department doesn't want you to think it's just a it's a panacea and then you can tune it out. So the next uh, section is entitled Policies and Procedures. Anything new or different or something stand out for you in these uh, areas? Well, it's one thing that stood out to me only because there's another example fresh in my mind from the headlines. But it's worth noting that there are more questions on this section about policies and procedures than any of the other 11 sections that this has, the, the guidance overall. Um, clearly, they're talking a lot about how do you devise a good policy? Um, how do you make sure that the policy grows, I'll say, a bit organically, that the business department knows about it, and the business department would say that this is working and this works for us, rather than compliance, living in a bubble, comes up with a policy and just pronounces it and shoves it off on the enterprise. That is not a good way to do it. Um, but the thing that jumped out at me most it was this point about gatekeepers that they have. And has there been clear guidance on or training for gatekeepers? Clearly, this is thinking about FCPA con uh, context. But just today, there's this big splashy story about Uber uh, that has been accused of ignoring sexual harassment, and its uh, HR department was turning a blind eye or working against complaints filed by female engineers at Uber. Now, that's the allegation. I don't know if it's true, and it's not an anti-bribery issue, but it is an issue of gatekeepers, HR, senior managers, gatekeepers not really getting there with the cause, whether the cause is a good work environment or anti-corruption. But that's always going to be a sore spot is how do you get the mid-level and senior level people really to pay attention to it, especially when they're not in the compliance department, but they've got a lot of ability to make compliance work well as a, as a thing, as a project. And then there's uh, really warming my heart, the entire section on operational integration of your policies and procedures. And it really starts with the development of the policies and procedures their implementation, and then uh, the uh, actual use of them going forward. We saw some of this in the uh, remediation prong of the uh, DOJ's pilot program, but here they've got several categories, including responsibility for integration, specifically internal controls and payment systems, the approval and certification process of 
payments and other approval requirements, and then uh, vendor management. So really a lot of detail in operationalization, and I think that they are more than clearly communicating. They're saying, you've got to put this down to the business unit level. You've got to have their input in drafting these policies. You've got to have their buy-in to implement, and then you have to work with them going forward. Yeah, and you know, we, when we talk about the business processes, uh, we should remember that a part of this isn't going to be the operational units, not the salespeople out in the, the far-flung operations. But some of these questions, clearly, compliance officer can't answer them without close help from the accounting or financial IT or financial compliance department. It really gets more to the nuts and bolts, Sarbanes-Oxley level of compliance with proper internal control over financial reporting. You know, if you can't manage that, you're not going to answer some of these questions about payment systems and approvals and certifications. The next section is risk assessment. And I would say of all of the sections, this may be the one we've seen the most on simply because the department has really articulated a, a series and set of criteria around risk assessment. But let me uh, direct you to the final point, Matt, which is entitled manifested risks. And then the question reads, mm -hmm. how is the company's risk assessment process accounted for manifested risks? And I, and I read that specifically because when I first read that, I thought, well, they're just talking about risks that you pick up in your risk assessment. How do you manage those? But upon further review, I'm not sure that's correct. So what's your take on this point? Yeah, I'm going to have to punt on this and say that I'm with you 100%. I think that's what they meant, but I'm not entirely sure. Um, you know, I would take manifest risks as to mean that these are risks that the company knows about. They've done their risk assessment. Um, you know, it's funny, just today I was talking to somebody else in the uh, advisory world at one of the big four accounting firms, and there's a lot of talk about how regulations might change in the new Trump administration. This person at the advisory firm did say, hey, look, all of our clients, first and foremost, they want to make sure that their risk assessment is thorough and comprehensive and thoughtful. Um, I might take a guess that if you just have a risk matrix of only two or three columns, so, you know, regulatory risk, litigation risk, and operation risk, like that's not enough. It needs to be a bit more comprehensive and precise and intelligent. And if you know, if you don't have a good risk assessment, then the rest of this stuff, you're just throwing money down the rat hole. Um, you, you might as well start there and focus a lot there. The rest of it will flow from a good, comprehensive risk assessment. So the next section is entitled Training and Communication. And once again, uh, there's been a fair amount of information presented on that. But here I even saw a few different things, at least different spins on uh, communication. Uh, previous DOJ communications, anything that you saw new or different there? Um, not really, no. I think, you know, broadly speaking, for a lot of these questions, it's nice to see them formalized, or the Justice Department will frown on me saying it's formalized or it's a checklist, but it's nice to see that they're all consolidated and listed like this. But, you know, frankly, everything that a compliance officer who has been paying attention for the last several years, everything you've heard before in bits and pieces or everything that you've thought through logically what it would mean, this is, it's all here. Um, most of what they're saying about training is, I, I don't want to say it's self-evident, but it's stuff that a compliance officer who has been working here and paying attention should know. 
Are you doing risk-based training so that your highest risk people are getting the best training? Um, are things provided in relevant language? Are, you know, what has senior management done to let employees know about misconduct that has happened and that it's not going to be tolerated? None of that should be shocking news to compliance officers who've been in the field for a while. And there are many companies that are already doing a lot of what this section is asking them to do or asking if you have done. So the, uh, the one thing that I would point out is they have, I would say, formalized the need to show the effectiveness of your training because they specifically said, as the company measured the effectiveness of your training, and that word effectiveness is something that I think many compliance practitioners have struggled with. How do you demonstrate effectiveness? Well, now you have to figure out a way to measure that. And you will notice that the uh, the guidance here is not terribly extensive on what a good effectiveness metric is. Um, you know, very nicely phrased to evade some of that that I think people would really like to know. And we could talk about that in a different podcast someday as you know, what are effective training metrics. But you know, they're not necessarily going to be self-evident, especially around training. You know, it's that old joke about your whistleblower hotline. If you have no calls – that because you have great training and nobody's committing misconduct or terrible training and nobody's bothering to tell you about all the problems. Um, the guidance remains silent on what a good effectiveness metric might be. That's really all we could say about it right now. So the next section is confidential reporting and investigations. Anything strike you uh, new or different here? Or is this once again a consolidation of what we've been hearing over the last couple of years? I think it's mostly a consolidation. I think that um, one thing that is interesting is the very first questions in this section talk about how the company collects, analyzes, and uses information from its reporting mechanisms. We've mentioned this in passing before, and I've written about it on my blog, that you really do need to think expansively about what your reporting mechanisms are, especially since your primary reporting mechanism is going to be an actual human being who's a manager and the reports will come in to him or her, and then you have to make sure that person knows to tell you, even if it's an innocuous incident, even if it's something that can be handled locally and it's not necessarily a bribery issue, you, you've got multiple incidents or formats of incidents coming together that you need to be able to collate the sophisticated analytics to understand what the problems really are. So you're not going to be able to do good reporting or analysis unless you're getting all of your reports and getting them in a form that you can crunch and analyze and study. That would be the key point I'd talk about. So next we have up incentives and disciplinary measures, or what I would call the carrots and the sticks. And here we see more operationalization because it specifically ties into HR and the disciplinary process, or excuse me, the process for disciplinary decisions. Anything else that uh, really jumped out at you in this section, Matt? Well, you know, I zeroed in immediately on the incentive systems and how the company incentivizes good behavior and also uh, disciplines bad behavior and how you communicate that out. Clearly, we've all seen Wells Fargo last year was the poster boy for incentives gone wrong. Um, but how can you actually embed good performance uh, or a good ethics performance into your payments? And systems? It's really tricky. A lot of companies 
want to give good incentives like you know, salary, bonuses, uh, distinctions and whatnot for good conduct or make that part of your salary review. I don't know how many companies really have mastered that. But um, at the end of the day, it's really what are you incentivized to do? And if you're incentivized to make profit come hell or high water, you're probably going to get hell or high water. And that's not necessarily a good thing. Um, I personally think that, you know, as much as we all like good communication and policies hung up in the break room, this is the effective communication here. This is what matters is what you're actually telling people about discipline, about rewards, about promotions, not even verbally what the policy is, but how do you do it? You know, when people are looking at what's happening in the company, this is what they're looking at, these sorts of things. So there was one point that really warmed my heart, Matt, and that was the consistent application of discipline. Um, Mm -hmm. My father was a labor arbitrator, so that was beat into my head many, many years ago. You consistently apply discipline. If the high producers in the United States, excuse me, in Brazil are fired, you got to fire the high producers in uh, the United States as well. And the example you cited to uh, a little bit earlier about Uber, the uh, justification given was, well, he's a high producer. So they didn't want to uh, discipline him. You have got to discipline fairly and consistently across your organization. So I was very pleased to see that. Mm Mm-hmm. Next up was uh, continuous improvement, periodic testing and review. And here I saw a little bit of change, but uh, what did you see in this prong, Matt? Well, I zeroed in on two things. Uh, First off, like we mentioned before, you're not going to succeed on a lot of the questions in this section unless you've got a strong internal audit function of some kind. Not saying you need an actual internal audit function. Maybe you co-source it with a provider. Maybe the corporate controller does this. Uh, you know, it's somehow as part of the finance operation. Somebody somewhere is in charge of those sorts of things of testing your controls and your policies. Um, but what I really noticed, the other point was evolving updates and ask questions about how the company updates its risk assessments and reviews, compliance policies and procedures and practices. We're at a point where the technology for this, I won't say it's outsourced, but your your companies are going to be shifting the regulatory change management. That's the buzzword. Shifting that from an internal thing you do with the big expensive IT that you buy every three years to embedding it as part of the cloud services that you're going to rent from a technology provider uh, for risk assessments, risk matrices, internal controls, and matching all of that up. There are now multiple software providers who offer this via the cloud. And they rent it out on a monthly basis per seat or something like that. But you know, you'll be able to get that change management done by those providers, not by you with that big Oracle or SAP implementation you do every four years. Uh, that's going to go away. And so... One thing that you might want to think about if you're looking at these questions is what is your compliance technology strategy? Because the cloud services, there's an awful lot to be said for. They have a whole different set of considerations and risks we can discuss in another podcast. But you're going to be thinking about your compliance tech strategy as you go through these kind of questions. So uh, we have we have heard before about the evolving updates, certainly in uh, the 
best practices compliance programs listed in DPAs. But the thing that struck me, Matt, was the control testing because internal controls have become a much more important uh, part of SEC review and enforcement. And now we see the DOJ calling out the control testing when it's uh, really not an area of or traditionally has not been an area of DOJ uh, focus because it's left to the SEC. So uh, I agree with all your sentiments on control testing, and I would just note for the compliance practitioner, uh, you need to map up your compliance controls to the COSO framework and to the uh, the 10 hallmarks and then do some, some testing going forward. Yeah, I, I mean, everything that you and I have just talked about, if we swapped out the words corruption and bribery and swapped in financial reporting, the internal audit people or the corporate accounting people would be thinking, oh, yeah, all right, we've done this. They may not like it. They may not do it well. But conceptually, what these questions are asking a company to do, they already do for other types of risks. So I like. it may be a little bit daunting to the compliance officer, but it is not daunting to other people in the corporate universe. They've been there before. So next up is third-party management. And once again, this is an area the DOJ has spent quite a bit of time uh, communicating because third parties are typically perceived to be the highest risk in uh, anti-corruption compliance programs. And I guess here, uh, uh, Matt, sorry, my uh, heart was warmed by the specific uh, questions around management of the relationship. Because I find that to be the most important prong in your management of third parties. And how do you do, how do you manage that relationship after you've signed the contract? It's not the business justification. It's not the due diligence. It's not the questionnaire. But it's what do you do with all that information after you've inked a contract? And they put that right up front. They did. And uh, that means for the compliance officer, you have to think more about who is the company's point of contact with that third party after the monitoring, after the due diligence, or after the review, uh, after procurement says, okay, we're going to bring this third party into our universe. Somebody somewhere, usually in operations or sales or something like that, they're going to be the ongoing point of contact for that third party doing its bidding for you. And you need to think about how do you, the compliance officer, keep an eye on that relationship and make sure the the relationship owner, that's a bit of an abstract term. I don't like it. But anyways, you know, the the relationship owner is that person aware of what he or she is supposed to be doing with this third party. And do they have the mechanisms to bring the right information back to you for ongoing monitoring of what's happening with this third party? You're right. The due diligence part, I don't want to say it's easy, but it's understood. The ongoing monitoring, you know, Good luck. Vaya con Dios with that. It is so difficult for many companies to keep an eye on approved third parties to make sure that they remain in good standing. And that's tough. Uh, so that's that's where I think a lot of the legwork is going to happen with these kind of questions. And then finally, uh, as with uh, the uh, denouement of the 10 hallmarks of an effective compliance program, for number 11, we have mergers and acquisition. And, and here, Matt, I would just note the DOJ has specifically articulated that uh, M&A really is a unidimensional continuum, and it starts with pre-acquisition and moves to uh, post-merger integration, and, and they made that clear to me is that that's the process you need to think through. But what, uh, what may have jumped out at you from uh, the M&A side of things? Okay, well, I'm going to get a little bit off-tangent here with this one. I think that, you know, clearly – 
this guidance took a long time to prepare. I don't know how long, but, you know, a matter of months. That is, it was, I'm sure, already in the works before Donald Trump took over on January 20th. I do question whether we may see some changes around M&A issues with ethics and compliance and inherited liability for various issues, because that seems to be something that a lot of people in Donald Trump's fan base and orbit seem to complain about is inherited liability that spooks companies from acquiring other businesses and growing. Now, there have not been too many discussions about FCPA inherited liability and how should we revisit that. But it's worth noting that in 2011, I think it was, Jay Clayton, who's the current nominee to head the Securities and Exchange Commission, back when he was in private practice in 2011, he wrote a paper complaining about overly burdensome FCPA compliance. This sort of thing came up, that inherited liability was something that uh, was dissuading companies from expanding overseas and an inhibitor to the U.S. competitiveness. Now, that was six years ago. Things have changed. But you know, a, a lot has changed between January 19th and January 20th in this country. And so I am kind of curiously, is these questions here, are we going to see that continue with the Trump administration? Because there are some other voices in the world who would say that you know, we need to revisit this. And I just I'm not quite sure. But that's where my first thought was when I looked at the M&A section. It's a very interesting take. A little feedback there. Sorry if we blew your headphones out and you're listening to this. But, uh, Matt, um, I guess really any kind of final thoughts tying this together or uh, based upon our our discussion, anything new or different that's come up for you? Well, you know, I think I'm more than anything else. I'm just I'm pleased the Justice Department did this. Um, uh, it, yeah, I hope that in the future, if they do things like this, they will keep on giving you know more attention to it, because I think the FCPA community would be would have been delighted on February 8th to know that it was out there. And I hope that they'll do more like this, um, you know, that I. I I hesitate to say it's a checklist, although, as I noted in my blog, there are actual checkboxes next to these questions. But it really it does. This guidance serves like almost a roadmap of not what your compliance department you know, needs to look like so much. as It's a roadmap to capabilities. This is what is it supposed to be able to do? It's supposed to be able to provide answers to all of these questions here. And this is really, really useful guidance, especially to companies that might be early stage and know that they're going to need a compliance program eventually. You know, what is important about it? How should we think about it? How should we think about our policies and our tone, which you can work on those without buying all of the software and the professional services and listening to the podcasts and all of that. Just right there, you can think about how do I lead my organization, if I'm a CEO, what are my good policies I want? How do I develop policies? Like just there, there's plenty of meat to talk about on on these questions. I mean, this this is a great document. I'm glad, delighted that the fraud section put this out. Well, Matt, I, I certainly share your enthusiasm, and uh, once again, that uh, for me, it communicates uh, a continuing conversation 
of two parties, the Department of Justice and the compliance uh, profession and compliance community to move forward the ball of having a best practices program and having a regulator in the form of the Department of Justice who will take a very serious look at companies that are um, really endeavoring to, to put a best practices program uh, going forward. So uh, with yeah. – um, you know, the first uh, couple of months here in the, the Trump administration, while perhaps on the business process side, you and I have both had some uh, biting critiques. We both see uh, the FCPA world is, is moving forward in a, in a manner that uh, we both applaud at this point. Uh, so far, everything that the fraud section has been doing and the lower level Justice Department officials have been doing, you know, it's regardless of your political stripe as a compliance officer and what you might think of Donald Trump. The FCPA industry or the, the section of the people across the table from you, like these are people you can work with and these people who are putting a lot of good thought into what they want to do with corporate compliance. Well, Matt, this has been a really fun dive into the weeds uh, on this one, and I hope we have something else that's meaty we can get into going forward. All right. Thank you, Tom. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. I have two requests for you. The first is if you'll listen to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate us as it would help our rankings and help get the word out about this most interesting compliance-related podcast. The second thing is if you have any questions for Matt or myself, we'd love to hear from you. You can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com, and you can email Matt Kelly at mkelly and radicalcompliance.com. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much again for listening to this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.